What's up, everybody? I'm Val, joined by my bog friend, Emmy. Hello! Now, I'm just gonna jump into it this week. When I saw that you were doing a profile on deep-sea creatures this week, I thought to myself, what better to compliment that than a deep space mystery? As I was researching, something that piqued my attention and terrified me was a space discovery known as the Great Attractor. First discovered in the 1970s, there's a location in space where surrounding galaxies, including our Milky Way, are being pulled towards at a speed of approximately 2.2 million kilometers per hour. I read that this is 2,500 times faster than a cruising airliner. Right now, scientists estimate that this location is about 150 million light years away. What makes it even more scary, though, is that from our vantage point, this location, object, what have you, is obscured. So the remaining Milky Way obstructs visible light from passing through, and this region is called the Zone of Avoidance only assume that something is there with a large gravitational pull because we can see the motion of other surrounding galaxies heading towards it. While visible light doesn't pass through space very well, X-ray astronomy changes the game. A cluster of galaxies were found in the locale of the Great Attractor, yet that doesn't explain everything. While what is called the Norma Cluster has the pull of thousands of galaxies, the gravitational force exerted by this region is still inexplicably too strong. To study this further, scientists broaden their scope to see that not only is the cosmos being pulled towards the Great Attractor, the Great Attractor is even being pulled towards what's called the Shapley Supercluster. Now, this region contains over 8,000 galaxies in the force of more than 10 million billion suns. This is considered the largest galaxy cluster for a billion light years, and everything we know of is moving towards it. I don't think we'll be there to see it, but it still freaks me out. <laughs> now, everybody that knows me knows I love science fiction, and I think something like The Great Attractor would make a great premise, but I'm guessing it exists out there somewhere already. But if not, my debut novel will be coming in 2028. <laughs> so there's a few sci-fi series in my queue that I want to talk about, but I think a great one to start with would be one of the five novels that make up Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, previously a BBC radio production. So one reason why I picked this is because, Emmy, you've actually read these books, too. So in order of the series, which is known as a trilogy of five books, there's number one, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, two, Restaurant at the End of the Universe, three, Life, the Universe, and Everything, four, So Long and Thanks for All the Fish, Five, mostly harmless. They can also be 
found combined into one larger book that's called The Ultimate Hitchhiker's Guide. There's also a prequel type of short story called Young Zaphod Plays It Safe. A collection of work Adams was working on before he passed was also made into a book called The Salmon of Doubt. The author of the Artemis Fowl series, Yoan King, also wrote his own version of a sixth book in the series called And Another Thing. The books were also made into a movie in 2005, and the cast was rather star-studded, actually. It has Martin Freeman, who also reads the audiobooks, as Arthur Dent, Alan Rickman as the voice of Marvin, the robot with depression. Other featured actors are Helen Mirren, Zoe Deschanel, Sam Rockwell, and Warwick Davis, who does the physical acting of Marvin. So let me get into the summary of the series. A fleet of ships carrying horrifyingly ugly and unpoetic aliens called Vogons appear to destroy the Earth to make way for an intergalactic highway. The news was posted a while ago, but no one from Earth bothered to venture to space to find it. Arthur Dent is a simple little Englander and townie whose totally normal friend, Ford Prefect, grabs him so they can hitch a ride from the mischievous species that work on the Vogon ship. Vogons themselves very unfriendly. Ford is a researcher for the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, a tool to help travelers navigate the universe. Some of its most helpful advice includes don't panic and don't forget your towel. Before the Vogons can kill them, they're rescued by Ford's cousin, Zaphod Beeblebrox, an eccentric individual with two heads, and his human partner, who they call Trillian, formerly known as Trisha McMillan. They don't really explain why they changed her name, but she goes by Trillian most of the time. Zaphod was a figurehead called President of the Galaxy, but is now a fugitive after stealing a ship with a special device called the Infinite Improbability Drive. It's hard to describe how it works exactly, but it basically means that they're always rescued at the last second because it would be so improbable that someone would be there to rescue them. Marvin, the depressed robot, is also on the ship. So it's revealed that Trillian and Arthur met at a party once, but she was swept away by a cooler man that turned out to be Zaphod. The reader starts to think that there could be something romantic here, but in my interpretation, in no point of the novels does Trillian seem interested in Arthur, nor does Arthur really try that hard to put himself out there to her. The group goes to a planet where they make other planets, and they meet a man named Slardy Bart first. He informs them that they're currently making an Earth 2.0 at the request of mice, the most intelligent species on Earth who have actually been around observing and performing experiments on humans, not the other way around. Slardy Bartfarst also tells a story of an ancient species who built a supercomputer called Deep Thought in order to find the answer to the ultimate question to life, the universe, and everything. After millions of years of calculating, the answer was determined to be 42. However, the ultimate question itself was not known. Deep Thought surmised that another, more advanced computer would have to be built in order to calculate the question. Slardy Bartfarce reveals that this computer was the Earth itself, over 4 billion years old, and was mere minutes away from solving the question before the Vogons destroyed it. The group hurried to leave because the mice believe that Arthur's brain could hold the question because he's from Earth, 
So they try to capture him. They run into police looking for Zaphod on their way out, but the police randomly die. This is explained as Marvin had decided to talk to the police's ship, but he was so depressing that the ship committed suicide. The book explains this as the ship contained sort of extraterrestrial life support mechanisms for the police, so they died when the ship no longer worked. After their hairy encounter, they all decide to go to the restaurant at the end of the universe, which starts the second book. So I'll give a summary of that one next time, but I wanted to say I find this book rather delightful and playful. Mm -hmm. And the second one, I don't even know if I like that one better or not. It's kind of hard to say. But you like it a lot? Oh, yeah. Nice. I just think it's sort of like some of the Wayfarer's books, which I know you haven't read yet. It's like so yeah. much can happen in one place in a small amount of time. And I really like those climactic stories where mm -hmm. it's just like one setting, one day almost. Mm -hmm. Same characters. Same with um, Darcy Coates, I feel like, does yeah. that a lot. I know exactly what you mean. I just read this book, and I think I still have it somewhere. Um, and it was like, oh my god, I can't remember what, what it's called. But it was like a book written in the 70s, and it was like a haunted house story. And it would basically birthed a lot of the haunted house tropes that we know today. Um, but it's like that same thing. It Like, it takes place over like three days. It's one setting, and it's only maybe like three, four four characters it would be stupid of me to ask if it was hill house right <laughs> i i don't remember if hill house was written in the 70s or earlier see now i need to i think i know exactly where it is because oh okay i found it so um but the downside about this book is because it was written by a man and it was written in like 71 <laughs> it just it it's just so horrible towards women. And uh, I don't think it was on purpose in like a haha <laughs> satire way. I think it was just like, I hate women, the ghost story. And <laughs> how do you find these? <laughs> you know, I, it, because, oh, okay. So it's Richard Matheson and it's, and that's by the, that's the same guy who wrote I Am Legend. And yeah, it's called, I was going to say. Yeah, it's called Hell House. And, oh, and it's literally like like the quintessential haunted house story. Like so many movies and TV shows, they all have tropes and like little little nods to this exact story. It's really quite wild. Um, so it's worth a read only from that point. Everything else was like there were points that were really difficult to digest. And sometimes I feel like a ghost story can get away with without being satisfying because that's almost like the point. Like I think Hill House was very unsatisfying, but it's because the house is in so much pain. But this was just disappointing. And then um, I found it in my <laughs> donation pile. So it's going to go right back. <laughs> you should let a good old pal look at that donation pile before you get rid of it. I'll take a gander, take some photos. We can make this work. Some trivia is that Towel Day is celebrated every year on May 25th as a tribute to Douglas Adams by his fans. On this day, fans can openly carry a towel with them. But yeah, so that's what I had for my section this week. And I know you like these books too. And if you read these books in how they are kind of structured as 
multiple novels. It's a pretty easy, easily digestible read. Uh, the book where it's the ultimate hitchhiker's guide can look a little intimidating, but so I'm going to pass it over to Emmy now, who's going to tell us about some deep sea creatures. <laughs> Okay, yeah. So you saw my my pictures of of the many buddies um of the ocean. Yes, I am I'm actually pulling <laughs> them up for myself right now. yep. We have the Magna Pinna squid, which I'm actually a little bit confused about the names of these giant squids because this one in particular, it's like the Magna Pinna and it, then it was like it's in like the Magna Pinnidae family and then they call it the Big Fin Squid. But then I see all these other charts and there's like two other Big Fin Squids and technically Magna Pinna isn't even like a name. It's like a species. So I'm not totally sure what to call him, but I I think Magna Pinda is fine. Can I just say I am so jazzed <laughs> by taxonomy, so the fact that you're oh like my god. talking about multiple names for it already really <laughs> tickles my fancy. <laughs> I really did know that you were going to appreciate that. <laughs> But yeah, but it, okay, so the Magna Pinna squid is absolutely one of my favorite animals, and I think it's pretty nifty that it's only really been, like, fully accepted by the scientific community, like, within our lifetime. Um, so it's, like, a pretty new animal. There's a lot of giant squids. Uh, there, I think there's about, like, seven or so, and then... The Magna Pinna, like I said, is like a like a species or something. And then this is like a Magna Pinna day. So I think that's why they just shorten it to Magna Pinna. But I think it's kind of like silly. It's just Magna Pinna, Magna Pinna. Like, okay. <laughs> like, okay, thank you, scientists. Um, so let's see. So the Magna Pinna, for anybody that has not seen, is a very, it's, it's, I think it's the spookiest. Because I used to think that, like, the regular giant squid, like, the big chunky one, was the scariest one, because that's, like, the beast of legend. But this one is actually so much worse, because it's very thin, and it looks so far from anything on this planet. It's very uncanny. It's, like, ghostly white. Parts of it are almost see-through. And I think my favorite part of it is how, like, not inorganic its limbs look, but how... I don't know, terrible its limbs look. So they call it like the big fin squid because it has like sort of a shorter squid-like body, but then it has these two like flat appendages that are sort of like, like you'll see them on like octopi and like other squids. They're like the fins that go along its head part, but they're really, really wide and they're really, really thin. So big fin. Oh, Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, but they're like, they're probably the biggest part in like, surface area of the squid but then the tentacles are kind of where all the jazz comes from because you have these like thicker like limbs that come from the center body and then the rest of the tentacle it like joins at this knee and then it's like this sharp almost 90 degree angle and then it's about their tentacles can be anywhere from 13 to 26 feet long And that's that's only with what we've seen and or caught. Um, this is one of those animals that's really, really difficult 
to pin down because usually the specimens are dead or they're too deep in the ocean. And if they're dead, they're usually damaged. So a lot of the data isn't clear. Do they have any, I guess, ways of threatening us? Like, are they venomous? Do they bite? So, Is there anything I should be worried about? so that's a really good question because um, they don't know how they eat. They still don't know. Um, and a lot of the physical specimens that they've like found via washed up or like fisherman nets, um, they've been juveniles or infants. And so they've never had like a physical specimen of an adult. Um, so uh, yeah, we just don't know how they eat. One of the theories that I think is pretty plausible um, is that they sort of drag their tentacles along like the ocean floor and they just kind of bring up little guys, I think, up their tentacles and just eat them that way. Um, some people even surmise that maybe they use their tentacles as kind of like a trap similar to jellyfish. Oh. Yeah, but one of my favorite things, so um, there's a YouTube channel that I really dig called, I think, Deep Sea Oddities, and they just compile, like, a lot of the newest, like, deep sea imagery from, like, ROVs and other, like, usually oil rigs, things of that nature, and so, like, one of the most famous sightings of the Magna Pena squid is from an oil rig in, I think, 2000 in, like, Mexico, um, and you keep seeing year after year more and more sightings and more and more photo and a video of the magnum pinna squid so at this point there's a lot out there but it's just that we can't make physical contact um but one of my favorite videos that deep sea oddities like put out is um footage of the magnum pinna squid and it looks like it's actually swimming and then at one point it looks like it literally propels itself away from the camera And so it goes from being this like inert animal to being something that's a little bit more conscious and aware. horrifying Yeah, the, the video is pretty intense because like usually when you see them, they're just floating and completely still like very much like jellyfish, like everything is just sort of vertical and you would almost think that it's a filter feeder. But like now people don't think that it is. It looks like something that can actually self-propel through the ocean. The only question is like, you know, is it a reaction or is it like a calculated move? Like how intelligent is this this little guy or long guy, honestly? Um, and then the other thing too that I really dig is like I, I love looking at the depths at which these animals live, just any like of the deep sea animals. But this one is like actually the most intense out of the three that I'm going to talk about um, because they can be located as deep as 6,202 meters, which is actually 20,381 feet. Like to even... I just Oh, I wish I had finished reading The Deep yet. <laughs> I'm like halfway through it, but it is so topical to this. Dude, I, my obsession with deep sea and deep space horror as a genre is, it's just my favorite thing. Like collecting different movies and books that fall under that like niche category. It's so very, very cool. Yeah, I just, I have so many books on my shelf, I just need to pack up and just give you, <laughs> and then we can reconvene. yes oh my god i'm i'm saying man
book club, even if it's just us. <laughs> I know. I have both 2001 and 2010 A Space Odyssey, so... Ooh, I was just looking at those in the library. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think we should just take photos of our shelves and send them to each other, and then we don't have to waste time on holds or loans. Oh my god, true. <laughs> because, like, there's so many, like, PKD books I have on hold right now at the mm -hmm. library. Um, My mom keeps yelling at me for buying more books, so <laughs> I have to be careful. No, to not... I totally get it. I'm, like, been... I'm reading them. Like, <laughs> I know. One of the, th like, compromises that I have for myself is, like, Kindle, because the mm. books are always a lot cheaper and it doesn't take up any space. Mm. I just, I love... If I really like a book, I like to have the copy. That's kind of my yep. gig. I, I'm literally the exact same way. <laughs> but there are definitely some I can read on my phone where it's kind of like take it mm -hmm. or leave it. Yes, absolutely. Like I almost buy like like books that are going to be a little silly, like um like The Meg, for example. Yeah. Which I just watched The Meg too. They like put it on Netflix. And I would have to say that that movie was much more enjoyable than the first one. Yeah, Carter and I saw it in 3D in the theaters, and <laughs> I had no idea when the movie ended, though. Did you also feel like it kind of just ended? It was really like, long. I But, like, the way it was going, I was like, I didn't even know we were at the end. Yeah, you know? I, I th kind of think they do that on purpose so they can lead into the third one. Because mm. I'm pretty sure there's at least three books. I also took an edible before I watched it, so I was oh. like, whoa. Like, I was like, that was over so fast. Oh my god, you were on a wild ride. <laughs> no, it was so good. <laughs> when it had, that one had the giant squid. Yes. Um, the squid my, was so good. <laughs> so I watched it with my parents, too, right? Because mm -hmm. I try to find stuff that's, like, kind of PG-13 for them. Sure. Even that's too much. So absolutely, we saw the first one in like 2018 when it came out, mm -hmm. and I was like, "Guys, let's watch the second one." Like I had already seen it over the summer, so I knew it was pretty safe. And my mom was like, "I swear, I've seen this before." And I was like, "I know we've seen the first one." And then it wasn't until the end where she's like, "Yeah, no, the first one didn't have that octopus." Um, didn't like she was it. Yeah, the whole time. She's like, no, this is it. And it's like, no, it's Meg 2. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. I mean, honestly, I get it because they are quite similar. Yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> and Jason Statham looks the same for the last 30 years. I know. I want to see his new Beekeeper movie just for giggles. <laughs> his what? He's in a movie where it's obviously another action movie. I don't know oh. if he is a beekeeper or it's got something to do with that. But like, there's an apiary somewhere. Yeah, somebody dies and he's like on this action plot for, I think, revenge. <laughs> and there's bees involved. I think so. It's um, like the beekeeper John Wick. I, yeah, I saw the trailer once, so I'm probably pretty off, but it was just an action movie. It looked good. I honestly hope you are 100% correct. I hope he's, like, <laughs> kicking people's asses and wearing the beekeeper suit. Yeah, that's like, um, <laughs> you gotta watch The Swarm on Netflix about a lady who breeds locusts, um, but it's a horror movie, so it's pretty I'd gross. I read that synopsis. You seen it? Was it good? Yeah, it was entertaining. 
Ooh, okay. All right. That's enough encouragement. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Um, All right. Next, next friend. So our I'm ready. second friend of the evening is called the Goblin Shark. Um, Mm hmm when I wrote these notes over the summer, the first thing that I put under the Goblin Shark was absolute Chad. So that's fine. Um, but honestly, they're pretty great. So, you know, if you review the photo, you see this horrible pink thing. And so goblin sharks are definitely quite special. Um, they're incredibly old. Uh, I think I read that their lineage is like 125, like, million years. And, um, they're like this really pale gray pink color. They can get quite long. Um, they can go to about like 10 to 13 feet long on average, but they have been known and recorded to grow as large as 20 feet long. So they do have very large potential. And I think it depends on how long they live because like deeper sea creatures, they tend to move slower, consume less, live longer, grow bigger, that kind of thing. Um, I never pictured them being that big. Yeah. Oh, my God. Seriously. And like their face. So their face specifically and like a lot of people have seen them, at least in passing, you know, just on the Internet and such. But, you know, they have like regular shark body. But the, the word that I kept seeing in like the articles I was reading was pink and flabby. So like, and I was like, you don't need to be so mean. <laughs> but apparently it's just kind of like a really gelatinous looking shark. But then you get to its head and it starts to have like. like really uncomfortable visible bone structure and it has like you know like sort of like the great white shark nose but make it thinner and elongate it and and then it make it flat and that's part of its snoot and then it has these holes closer to right above its mouth at the bottom of its nose and i do believe it uses like like a lot of sharks they use what is it like electromagnetic sensors and things and that's how they sense where prey is um, and its eyes are actually quite large in relation to its teeth which are also quite large um, so its eyes are like pitch black perpetually and they're placed right at the base of where the nose meets the rest of the head but the main thing that you see is its gums jaws and teeth So Yeah. it's horrible. So it's essentially like its nose is like a mile away from where its jaw actually is. And what I loved is it told me how many teeth it tends to have. So it usually has 35 to 53 teeth on the upper jaw and 31 to 62 teeth on the lower jaw. And uh, and the thing about it is that the jaw does actually physically move out of its head when it catches prey. So its jaw like juts forward and captures it and brings it back into its mouth. And so the jaw is like perpetually descend dis distended. And it's essentially like like if we didn't have an upper lip, that's what it would look like. It's all gums and then teeth. But it's as if our upper jaw could move like our lower jaw when we ate. Yeah. That's the goblin I'm shark. I'm picturing that on a person. It's terrible, right? It's very Hellraiser. <laughs> I just <laughs> I want to see an x-ray footage of that. oh man, watching cuz I think there is footage out there cuz I I knew when I was researching I was like, "Oh, doesn't its jar like move?" Um, so I think there is definitely footage out there, but they don't have a lot. It's probably in one of those like like planet documentaries.
that they did on like TV when they do like deep sea ocean, but they're relatively rare, but they're, they're not like so rare to the point that they're classified as extinct. They're just old and rare, <laughs> which I thought was kind of funny. Um, It's believed that the adults can dive really deep. Um, they can dive to even the depths of, uh, let me see, 4,270 feet, but they only can for short periods of time. They think it has to do something with feeding. Um, doo -doo -doo. And they, they tend to do some, some pretty spooky haunts. I looked up like where they tend to live, and it's called a, uh, oh, no, no benthopelagic animal. Oh, benthopelagic. It means they're near the bottom, but they're in the water. Uh-huh. Yes. Yes, you got it. So it says um, they tend to inhabit upper continental slopes, submarine canyons, and seamounts, which I'm like, oh, what's a seamount? It's it's an underwater mountain. Hilarious. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and, and that tends to be at a depth of 330 feet. But like I said, adults will tend to live deeper and dive even deeper in the ocean. Um, Yeah, yeah, that that's really that's really all I have for that funky guy. Um, I'm pretty sure we have like mummified specimens, so it is not nearly as out of reach as the Magna Pinna squid, just as a comparison. <laughs> right? But he's still just a spooky guy. But I also love too how I don't think there's a single deep sea creature that we know in an absolute way. Like, I feel like there are a lot of terrestrial creatures that, like, we've seen everything, like, complete life cycles, socialization, if applicable, all kinds of information. But then you get to fish, and it's like, I, I don't, I mean, maybe, I think it does that. Uh, I'd like to request the ore fish for your part two. Oh my god, sign me up. The other one that I was thinking about was the gulper eel, which is another favorite animal of mine, um, but I wanted to focus on these three right now. So I think definitely we can get some long boys in there. <laughs> so my third friend is the um, Antarctic strawberry feather star, and it is, it's, it's a very beautiful creature in a way that you wish you had never seen it and now your existence is cursed. Um, so this was found actually pretty recently. Um, of course, like I don't actually have when it was discovered. Um, but I remember when I first started looking into it, it was definitely within the last like five years that this was discovered. And of course, it's discovered in Antarctica. And it's the kind of this like pale tan thing. It looks really similar to a face hugger, but honestly, like way more complicated. Like there are so many individual like appendages on this creature. And the only reason why it's called a strawberry feather star specifically is because its weird little body mass looks kind of like a strawberry in shape only. <laughs> The rest of it look like horrible cursed fingers, and then they just keep going, and then they break off into more fingers, and it kind of has like the same color palette as like a zebra fish, but mm. or like a zebra turkey turkey fish, like the invasive one, um, but worse, worse and multiplied and melted together, and there's no face. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Um, from the article, I took a screen cap, and so I picked this little thing, and I must have picked it on purpose, so I'm going to read it. Uh, during their surveys, researchers collected eight feather stars with a distinctive body shape and discovered a new species. Oh, no. Uh, Proma? No. 
Chroma cochranus. Chroma cock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chroma cochranus fragarius. Or the Antarctic strawberry feather star. The Antarctic strawberry feather star has 20 arms branching off its central, quote, strawberry like, end quote, body. <laughs> it can range from purplish to dark reddish in color, which is really interesting because this one is like pale and brown and tan. So it's kind of wild that they would even have that much of a spectrum and color. Um, Oh, I wonder, is this one deceased? Could that have something to do with it? oh, that's actually a very good question. Um, hmm, may, maybe. Um, do, do, do. Unfortunately, the researchers for this particular article did not comment on its overall size. Um, do, do, do. But this one, right, this one is neat because it's, it's, because it's a new species, it does have like new characteristics. And so this one shows it has two types of appendages. Its lower, shorter arms appear to be striped and bumpy. So those are kind of like the finger-like ones. Um, it's like literally thinking of a face hugger. It has like that many joints. And then um, its upper, longer arms are like feathery and soft. It's so creepy. Yeah. And so the thing, too, is like, you know, Feather Star, I had never heard of before I like happened upon this article on Facebook over the summer. But I had known of like a sea star. And apparently the only difference is the location of the mouth on the body, which is a horrible qualification. Um, but uh, feather stars actually live deeper than goblin sharks, which I think is pretty cool. So I would say in the tier list, you know, the Magna Pinna squid is at the absolute lowest, and then feather star, and then goblin shark. And I think, just for fun, I think gulper eel is lower than goblin shark. Fun fact. Um, but I don't know where it stands up against the feather star. I should make a tier list. <laughs> But um, an average feather star, so not necessarily the one that I had like shared the pictures of, the one that I'm like, kind of like looking at, but most feather stars tend to be about like a foot in length. But the but like the strawberry feather star in particular, not only does it have like new appendages, but it was said to be particularly large. But unfortunately, again, like exact measurements were not available of this particular specimen. But I think any scientist going, that's a big boy, is a little bit alarming. <laughs> um, but yeah, I thought it would be fun to kind of cover like the classics because the goblin shark we've known about for the longest amount of time. They do believe that the Magna Pinna squid has technically been known since um, 1883. But due to the fact that like Magna Pinna is now seen as like a species, not like a or or more like a, you know, like, I, I don't know, species or family or like one of those. It's more like a broad term. It's not necessarily like a specific term anymore. Yeah. Um, they they can't really confirm whether or not it was like the Magna Pinna squid as we know it today. But it's still really interesting to think that people have been seeing these creatures for so long. I know. I sent you um a link to a YouTuber I like called mm -hmm. Dr. Jaws. And they do like really long profiles on different oh. shark species. And they're pretty wholesome. I love long format information. Yeah, no, the... And they'll do live streams like, oh, leopard shark live stream. <laughs> it, it's really cute. <laughs> oh, I like that so much. But yeah, those those are my favorite guys. 
Oh, I'm so happy to hear about it. <laughs> <laughs> Katie's on the heated blanket right now, snoozing. oh, she's so smart. She's so real for that. <laughs> Alrighty. <laughs> Well, you go eat food. yeah. <laughs> Good night, Val. Good night, buddy. Oh, I can't wait to find our next topic. I know. Welcome home, Columbia. Beautiful, beautiful.